They'll catch you. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So what? Pick up the gun! scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And, you know, he was here a minute ago, but he said he needed to finish his dinner real quick. And I believe he said a burger and fries. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you, listeners, back into our big series for the year, What Scares Us slash What Saves Us, a series defined by you. You've been submitting your stories of films and media that stoked a certain fearful imagining in you, and we have been covering them here on the show. Today, we have a very special guest whose, sub- whose submission, I'll admit, left me scratching my head a bit, but who can say the things that scare us? Because apparently for this guy, it's the movies featuring Will Smith as a love expert. But I'm sure we will find out what that is all about, because ladies and gentlemen, it is the man. The myth, the Collier, friends and foggers, welcome back to the show, Blake Collier. Blake, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm becoming like a little toy that you set on your shelf. I've got decoration. some right here. You know, there's a <laughs> but it's for the fog. Like, for it's you. for the fog. It's for the fog. Shelf. Yeah, you just set me I on like my account on the shelf. I, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I have wanted since Jacob Hunt designed Frank and Nathan and Doctor Riedenstein, mm-hmm. I have. 
not with deep research, because I know if this were to materialize, it'd be very expensive, but I've actually tried to figure out how to make action figures of Frank and Nathan and Dr. Edenstein, because I think that possibility exists. And then we can just add the fog fam to the shelf as well. Um, So real quick, Blake, before we welcome read back, but just between us, um, Blake, have you seen the trailer for Ted Lasso season two? <laughs> you know what? I literally just watched it. I had not what? seen it until. Yeah. I didn't even know it existed. Had you really not? Until you, yeah. Until you told me about it. And so I watched it right before I got on here. I was like, Oh man, what I, gotta, a wonder. I gotta watch this. <laughs> you do. And it was amazing. I mean, I'm so Football excited. Is life. <laughs> yes. Yes. Danny it, Rojas. It applies in so many parts of life. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's so good. We, yeah. I guess we'll get to the content yeah, for today. Yeah. We are, we, we should move along. Um, uh, 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 we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit here. Cause at the fear of God, we explore, we don't explain except for right now. When I explain that you can listen to the fear of God at your nearest podcast platform, you can watch the fear of God on YouTube. A lot of new fun, little, little, little video bits creeping out into the world. And you can browse the fear of God on the web where the Afterthoughts blog series has just exploded recently. Thank you, Blake, for your submission for this episode. Uh, at the fearofgodpodcast.com, where in addition to Afterthoughts, you will find Reed. Hey, buddy. Hello. You're here. Hello. How was dinner? It was good. I mean, I just had appetizers. You know, finger foods. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> That's right out of cheers. <laughs> what else? Awesome. He said I made oh. finger foods. Sandwiches shaped like fingers. That's right. Oh man. Mm, oh cheers. I get it. I y'all get seen it. my picture. Y'all seen my picture, right? I, I mean Blake what? Blake Blake's not gonna bring up cheers and me not like come on now. This will be a YouTube YouTube exclusive, okay? Because I can't share it with folks on the on the podcast but yeah so that the you know celebrity meet and greets have been a thing yeah the Rhea Perlman yeah right? no it wasn't Rhea Perlman no 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 it's oh. it's I shared a drink with Norm I shared a I shared a drink oh, Norm. I, I shared no, a drink with Norm it. yeah George went George went and met with you online George went and met with me I, I bet he's never heard that joke so. <laughs> <laughs> not on not on this show he hadn't <laughs> so yeah the little celebrity cameo meet and greet you can call in uh, a celebrity for a you know nominal fee and uh yeah i shared a couple of minutes conversation with no- good old norm from cheers and shared a drink with him that was that was that was very delightful i had a good time it was fun nice i bet that i bet that uh that function that service that app has just blown up during old oh absolutely times. absolutely yeah these that's how work actors it. are like hey <laughs> I can make a few bucks off Lackey. Hey, <laughs> $15. It begins to feel like a like a hotline at a certain point, you know? <laughs> the, like yes, the, the little that's number, what it is. Yes, for the little numbers of like, hey. I guess, Reed, you had to pay a little bit more for Cliff because he's the superior one, right? Oh, wow. You know, Cliff hasn't done one. I keep watching out. I keep looking out, but Cliff has not done one yet. But boy, if Cliff ever does, wow. I will answer that and I'll be like, you know, little known fact. So anyway. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> so today, Reed and Blake, we are. Um, do we? Ha- well, before we do that, Reed, do we have any business we need to conduct? Not, not we any don't really. New, let's not just any new business. I mean, let's just no business. Let's just dive in. Why don't you just take us? Yeah. Take us into the continent, Reed. <clears throat> <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, it is time once again to revisit the continent. 
You know the tune, you know the song. Oh, wait, no, sorry, that's that's not the right one. It's um uh hold on, I'll I'll have it in just a second. It's uh uh I think it goes uh No, 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 it's not it's not that way. Is it uh Believe it or not, I'm walking on it. No, 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 it's not that one. No. It's it you know what, we're going to to episodes five and six of The Witcher, so uh welcome to TV Guideposts. That was uh <laughs> you know, I was trying to come up with a new theme song today. Were uh, you? So it's like put a penny in your Witcher. I guess. Uh the which is the formal one, the official one from the show. Um of like you remember the old put another nickel in, you know? No. Put another nickel in in oh, that Nickelodeon. Yes, yes, I do remember. All that. I yes. ever wanna watch is the Witcher, Witcher, Witcher. You know, it's like <laughs> trying to find some inroad that that's the theme song of the sure. witcher in the show of the witcher yaskier just goes around <laughs> That'd be the best. it would become the best show if that was actually the theme song yeah oh absolutely it's absolutely. like put a penny in your witcher put another nickel in your witcher <laughs> he's just <laughs> overflowing with coin <laughs> oh, all right so reed we are and blake uh welcome to the the fog show and the witcher show uh hope you uh, you know, Did we ever decide which witcher is which. Ooh, mm, the sand, the sandwicher, uh. <laughs> sandwicher. Wow. So these two wow. episodes, five is bottled appetite, six is rare species. Mm-hmm. Um, Reed, what are your? You know what? what? The funniest. I'm going to tell you this as our inroad to this. Okay. So episode five is where. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is where Geralt and Yennefer Vanderberg. <laughs> finally <laughs> finally meet right uh yes. this is the episode yeah episode the, five yeah in the super orgy um yeah there's that and so that happens but one of my favorite lines ever just because it's like that got left in here is so so uh blake you're new to this show uh you know You've got the, the mage, the witch, Yennefer, who, uh, in addition to various other sorceress-esque powers, has some sort of pheromonal ability, right? Am I wrong, mm-hmm. Reed? That's something that's I, going on there? I, it has to be. Yeah, that has to be the little, like, mist thing that's going that's around. What, yes. That's what Wikipedia told me. Okay, okay, okay yeah. cool, cool. Glad you uh, <laughs> glad you did the homework. Um, so she tries to exercise this pheromonal capability upon Geralt of Rivia, mm-hmm. but he is a wall of man and he does not succumb <laughs> right but late in the episode he he finally starts to buckle under this pheromonal thing and he goes that scent lilac and and then she finishes it and she says gooseberries <laughs> i was like that's the dumbest thing ever <laughs> i always thought gooseberries was something else and it was yeah, not yeah, I mean, like, no kidding i thought it was the little balls like, on the back of the cow Oh, oh really? Oh, that's a yeah. dingleberry, I think. No. Oh, wow. that's true. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> funny with that. That was the first pass at the script. It's like lilac, and and she goes dingleberry. dingleberry. <laughs> I would have believed it in the continent. <laughs> it's just oh, 
anything goes. Anybody can do anything and anything goes. So Lilac and Dingleberry. I kind of wish they'd left that in there. <laughs> but, I, I mean, mean most, it's most not like gooseberries is any like more romantic, you know? What? I don't know. I don't I don't know what would have ended that sentence that would have invoked some romance and sex appeal, but gooseberries was not the word no, I was no, waiting not for. Gooseberries. Dingleberries but, might have been better. I mean it's complimentary. Think about it. Sure. Yes. One hopes oh, that wow. the lilac is a little bit more powerful, but sure, yeah, yeah right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then everybody gets naked. In this episode. Oh my god, this there's so much you nakedness know, in this episode. It'll do that. There is so much. Actually, my whole little call out to the whole Game of Thrones theme song thing was it was literally inspired by how much nudity there is in this episode because it's like there's. It's it's they crammed so a series worth of Game of Thrones nudity into one episode, all into this episode. So here's what. Okay, so real talk. Pivoting out of okay. the yeah, pivoting out of the humor for Dingleberry. a second. <laughs> right. Pivoting pivoting away <laughs> from from the humor for a second. So <laughs> last week I just championed and meant every word my like affection for three and four and how the show kind of like had me. Boy, if anything threatened to just like reverse thrusters on all of that, it was episode five. Not because of the plot. I'm still all in on the plot. The Jen plot line and the little mystery of like who has the wishes and how do they save Yaskier and everything. Like I, I thought that was interesting. But it immediately felt very excessive and gratuitive the amount of nudity in this in this episode. And so so what's what's interesting is that, you know like I'm I don't consider myself to be somewhat prudish um you know i i'm 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 fine with like all kinds of mature content like it's it's perfectly fine um, how, but, again like gooseberries i didn't know how that sentence was going to end right, you're yes, like exactly. i'm not a prude and fill in the blank what your counterpoint right, is going to be to prove say. that you're not a prude yes. i was waiting yes. <laughs> you let me down <laughs> sorry so <It's> okay <laughs> but but uh, like it just felt to me in that moment like just very unnecessary for how many you know the the orgy scene just sort of was what it was but it just felt in general like somewhat unnecessary for how frequently Yen- the character of Yennefer is nude in this particular episode and I didn't know because like sometimes I know and I and I want to just sort of hang a lantern on this this sort of reality that sometimes expressions of nudity and expressions of body uh, for certain people can be an expression of self and can be a kind of a very empowering thing and it's possible that that was what uh, is playing in here especially considering the fact that the showrunner of The Witcher is a woman and the writer of of the of this episode is a woman and the director of this episode is a woman. So I, I have to, you know, acknowledge that maybe what was going on here was not exploitation on the part of producers, given how much female presence there was in the creation of this episode. But um it was a bit off putting to me in general. I found the story great. I, f- I thought that Yennefer's performance was really really strong i think that she as an actor is delivering has been this entire show she's been delivering a wide range in her growth from just being this uh initially sort of crippled and hunchback character to the very sort of empowered person that she is at this stage of the show um so i find the actor very impressive and i think that it's it's it is a really strong performance but yeah it's just there were so many times where it, it was taking me out of the episode to be like why why does she? Why is she naked at this point? Like I don't, I don't understand entirely at this at this stage. So I don't know. Like feels a bit a bit awkward to kind of bring that up because it, you know, it, it 
yeah, all the different implications. But that was a, a, a big step backwards for me in the in in my enjoyment of The Witcher, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's well. What's funny about it is like the show has flirted with those. Um, I'm hesitant to say heavy sexual themes, but just sexuality. Yeah, it's know, not the first nudity in per the show, episode. Right. right, right. Per episode, there's typically some sort of nudity aspect, but in five specific well even the end of three was a little uncomfortable just the the transformation sequence right right. but even that you could make a case has some artfulness to it it's it's a bit shrouded so on and so forth well so the orgy scene being what it is it's so it's a very lengthy scene Mm -hmm. and it's just it's it's really well lit i'll put it that way (laughs) Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the end scene with her trying to capture the genie and, uh, it's just like, yeah, I mean, you, I guess if you got it, flaunt it. I mean, that's how I operate in the world. Um, yeah, you clearly have no problem just streaking through, you know, what, you know, like and more power to it's you. It's not a, it's not a genie. It's a, it's a gem. A it's gym. true. It's true. It's yeah, I was using the common, the common tongue. <laughs> yes. What'd you say? <laughs> just don't be stepping on other cultures, bro. Yeah, yeah like come yeah, on, yeah. Come for on. sure. Get, get her, get her right, get her right. But I find like that, like I've I've heaped some criticism on this episode, and I, I, I won't backpedal on any of it. But I find the Jen plotline, the plotline, really interesting, and it's a great way narratively to collide Yennefer and. Geralt together because he needs a mage. She's the mage of this time. And they collide. See, that's the other thing. (laughs) The the moment with the the, the orgy notwithstanding, when Yennefer and Geralt finally are intimate, fully clothed. Fully like every every bit of (laughs) Take off that armor, Cavill. Wow. Wow. (laughs) But it's just, you know, like uh, take off that armor, cowboy. No, wow. no, I mean, you know, I guess it works too. Wow, but no, like Superman. I mean, so so, but just you know, uh, uh, yeah, just in general, maybe it, maybe it's a personal hang-up, maybe it's something like that. I can I can acknowledge that, you know, I I can acknowledge that there's a wide array of perspectives on this particular subject, but for me, the biggest hindrance was that it kept taking me out of the episode because that kept being sort of the thing that was there, and so it was. A matter of uh, sort of like I kept wrestling with like was this a production choice was this a, I mean when I'm like tempted to Google at the moment who the writer and director and producer was so that I could find out if this was a potentially exploitative moment then th- that's you know maybe just a personal hang-up of mine where I couldn't couldn't quite you know cross that bridge for this particular episode but so ultimately what you're saying is there was a whole lot of gooseberries in this episode it's well <laughs> Make of that so, I, so, what? so someone who who has seen exactly ten minutes of the first episode of the show. Hey, hey. I read I read the Wikipedia yeah. entry of the first six episodes. And I've never struggled so hard to get through paragraphs in my life. <laughs> like there were so many names and towns. Yeah. Yes. I mean I was just oh, yes. like, what in the world is going on? Oh yeah. I yeah, mean, you should watch it. You need oh, a gosh, you need a grid. You need like a well, what's really funny about you saying that is I I went and read uh, some of the Wikipedia page today, and what was helpful to me was the timeline, you know, explication. Yeah. But to your point, the little paragraphs about the episodes, I had the thought. I was like, man, just reading this. 
the volume <laughs> of strange names and places are multitudinous. You know, it, yeah. it is kind of head spinning well, how they just and throw then, you in the deep end. And then I found out that I guess there is a primary plot line that threads through the video game and through the main sequence of books. And that this season one of The Witcher, they have taken that primary plot line, and instead of dropping us into the primary plot line, they have chosen, as an active creative choice, they have chosen to then go, uh, and all of the books and stories that were published later, you know, like like you had the main thread of the story, and then later the author published stories that were like, and here it was Geralt before he met Yennefer and and here was how Yennefer and Geralt met and stuff like that and they've chosen as a production team to thread those stories together and make that your season one so you're taking a bunch of stories that by their conception admittedly rooted in this world but by their conception they were you know self-contained pieces and trying to thread them into a cohesive whole I guess I have to I guess I have to applaud their ambition and have to say that to succeed as well as they even do, which I don't even think they fully do a great job of cohesion, but to succeed as well as they do is admirable. Um, but yeah, it's like that's that's something that I find just incredibly daunting. Like, hey, let's let's take all of these, you know, disconnected. Well, not disconnected, but let's take all of these compartmentalized stories and filter them all into just one thing. Well, they've. I, I was reading today. They've. I think greenlit or at least is, you know, early, early conversations, uh, a prequel series, you know, just about the origins of the witchers as a really thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Wow. There's a lot, uh, either. Um, I, I mean, I, I think Netflix is pretty coy with mm. their metrics. So by their definition, it's a, it's a massive hit. Yes, I, I, sure. pre- I presume that's correct by some yes. obscure metric. Um, so you know, I mean, everyone, on uh, their, everyone on their dog when it first came out around me was talking about it. So I yeah. thought it was a big deal when it came out. I was like, oh, so this is a thing. Like, yes. This is like the next game. Of I Thrones. love that what you were concerned with isn't oh, so the Witcher's a thing, and not your dog can speak. <laughs> okay, okay, no, I'm down. No, he just likes watching Henry Cavill. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't? Who doesn't? You know. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, I mean that's the thing is like, and then I remember I don't remember the concrete numbers, but I remember they listed their at one point they listed their top ten most watched original series of all time. And Witcher was in the top 10, and I think in the top five of them, in terms of like when Netflix released an original series, like the, the, the cream of the crop in terms of their massive viewership. And yeah, I mean, video games are a tremendously, well, to the, the, the book series is, is, uh, I, as I understand it, very popular. The video game series is wildly popular. So it's, it stands to reason that there's going to be this, uh, you know, this thing as well. I guess, you know, not to, not to belabor too much on, on episode five. Episode five narratively is, is fine. I think it's, I think it's really great. Um, episode six, um, I, I felt like in the first 10 minutes, I was like, oh, dang, they've, they've, they've got me now. Like, oh, a, a hunt for a dragon? I'm in. Like, this is going to be so great. Um, but then much of the episode sort of plays out somewhat differently, and then you don't really get the dragons until kind of the end, and even when you get them, they're, they're not quite what you, were, what you were really expecting. I will say, though, that in episode six, and Blake, you won't 
you won't quite connect to this because of just reading the Wikipedia entry, but the actor who plays Borscht Three Jackdaws, which is 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 the character's right, bless you, right, yes, <laughs> yes. But the actor who plays him is named Ron Cook. He's a, a a character actor that goes way way back into like the seventies, and his presence just sort of from acting pedigree is really really strong. He was one of my favorite parts of this entire show for just the few moments he was on screen in episode six. Um, I just really loved his his contribution to the story. Um, in general, six didn't quite for me re- reclaim the elements of like my my excitement and entertainment around episodes three and four but it was at least a a little bit step up and and i did like genuinely and authentically liked the tension and character stuff they did at the end of six where they're like severing severing some of the relationships they're establishing tension between like the stakes of the world the broader world so i genuinely enjoyed that and thought okay this is the kind of ramp up we need for the last two episodes to to take us into wherever this series is going to land the season is is going to land i would imagine i was i kind of you know you you invoked the game of thrones reference there reed and 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 it's interesting you know anyone any witcher fan trying to pitch the witcher to um Pitch the Witcher. <laughs> Pitch the Witcher. Pitch, Pitch the Witcher the Sandwich. <laughs> um uh would probably invoke Game of Thrones. What's interesting though, because <clears throat> I was just scanning my notes here, and I do like that Yennefer's motivation is somehow a regaining of this fertility she traded. Right. Right. For, you know, kind of non disfigurement. And there's a word where that's a really fascinating motivation. Sure. But I don't know that the show lets, lets that breathe. And mm. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly. Other than I think, I think what I'm trying to say is I'm interested in the story. Sometimes the storytelling leaves something to be desired for me. Sure. Um, right. If that makes any sense. No, um, it does. Because like I, I mentioned last week, talking about the emotional arcs that don't quite like, there are episodes because the the moment that Yennefer needs to reclaim or that that she sort of pivots Where's she from? Uh from what is the name of her Man, I was trying to set you up for a good joke there. Yennefer from Oh, from er, Vanderberg. <laughs> I love the 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 progression there of oh right and then you dropped into the accent and then you did it yeah, it was really cute it, no, i oh, loved it oh no, great good i'm glad i could entertain jennifer uh, vanderberg jennifer vanderberg but um the uh so the portal plot line in episode <laughs> four i believe where you know with um what i called psycho jiminy cricket but basically like where she's trying to run away from the the the, the creature that's trying to kill them but that's when when she's unable to save the baby and the baby dies right. in, in her arms that's the moment which taken in isolation actor is performing at peak level that that actor that plays Jennifer really is a very strong performer and and emitting an, an incredible range but then um that is couched in the midst of the momentarily far more compelling story of what's happening at the banquet with Geralt right and so to me, it's like you're throwing so much at me that I that it's difficult to anchor into certain key pieces that you yes. need me to carry over from right. place to place. Like I'll say this about the Siri plotline. I'm at episode six right now. As of this recording, I have not seen episode seven and eight. I could not care less about Siri. 
Maybe I will by the time season one has ended. Maybe I will. But at this stage, I could not care less about what is happening with Siri. I was really interested in the very first episode where I was like, okay, you know, this this little child is going to be like this destiny thing that Geralt is going to... But then the most we've gotten from her is like she, you know, snuck into that forest and almost got killed a couple of times. And everybody keeps talking about how she's the big destiny and she's the big deal. But I don't see any of that yet. And then you get freaking mystical tree at the end of can't remember what episode which comes in and is like i am group <laughs> yeah that felt very what it felt very odd and yeah <laughs> she stands before the tree not your story yeah group. Not, not, your your story. Story. <laughs> not your story Groot's like i am Groot. Yeah. i am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny but no but Thank like you. the tree was like <laughs> The tree was all like, you know, like, who, you know, what are you, girl? Or, who, you know, who are you, girl? And that's really interesting. I, I saw a behind-the-scenes thing where the, the creators have literally said, like, yeah, so we're going to play that out throughout the series. We will not get the answer of what that tree is for probably a while because they well, plan to hold it back. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's just like a minute scene, right? Like it just oh, happens at the end of an seconds. episode. Yeah, it happens yeah, right yeah, at the yeah. end of right at the end of an episode. And so it's like moments like that. What's really funny about what just happened is I worried I had fallen asleep, so I was trying to pad <laughs> the amount of time that it might have been on screen. So I was like, it's like a minute, right? I remembered no. it being like 15 seconds, though. <laughs> no, it was only that. And so again, I haven't seen episode seven and eight, which we will. Maybe I will feel differently about the Siri plotline. Blake I'm, won't. But no, he Wikipedia. But um. <laughs> But but like Geralt, Geralt's plotline, I'm I'm tracking. I'm following. I think Henry Cavill's doing some great work, and and I'm I'm tracking that plotline. Yennefer, they've got me sold in on it, despite my my commentary about how much of Episode Five sort of, you know, disconnected me in some ways. Um, I'm I'm in on Yennefer. Um, the Siri plotline, I just I I can't buy into yet, and I think part of it is because they have chosen. They took a gamble, and credit for boldness. But they took a gamble to tell these three plot lines concurrently, but not, you know, with any sense of, I shouldn't say any sense, not with a coherent sense of comparable emotional beats. Sometimes we focus a a ton on Geralt and minimally on somebody else. And then, and, and that is sort of difficult to anchor into in the rhythm of the series for me. Well, and as a last note, kind of on a technical level, the, the Wikipedia stuff that does outline the timetable where Siri is in the story now is only a year ahead of where right. we leave Geralt and Yennefer. And so I imagine the next episode, there's going to be some finally some connecting points there. Yeah. Because, um, well, and to your point, Reed, you referenced this last week. If I hadn't been told by the internet and what the one or two people I knew that had watched this about the divergent timelines I wouldn't have known explicitly until a the banquet right but before the banquet because that's the same episode that's what it is at the top of that episode episode four uh yes. when Yennefer is with that queen and the baby mm-hmm. she says I've been the mage here for 30 years or something like oh right. there it is right Yes. But that's like the most we had gotten up until that point. No, that absolutely. It was clearly tracking different sort of chronologies. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. So, uh, decent, decent pair of episodes. Yeah. Gooseberries, a, you know. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you have enjoyed this trip. Strapes through the field of lilacs, maybe through the field of gooseberries, but most appropriately, 
of the field of dingleberries. <laughs> Man. Saying saying that word in a really deep voice <laughs> is somewhat strange, but but here we are at the continent continental dingleberry. Breakfast. Oh. oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm gonna stop now yeah. and say that we'll see you next time on hashtag TV guideposts. TV guideposts. I'm tired now. Whew. <laughs> I mean Whew. when you're when you have the law of surprise on your side. The law of surprise. Oh, surprise, boy. surprise. I write about that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. man. So, um, but, you know, Witcher is not the only itcher that we're here to scratch. So, we are also here to talk about the Hitcher. And I thought you were going to say a bitcher. Well, you know what? What? You just did for me. So, that's, <laughs> so that's good. That's good. Um, so, okay, Blake. You're no stranger to the show. Been on several several times, Quarterly yeah. Kings and solo uh, installments, uh, Pontypool, Saw, etc. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you entered a, f- a handful of things for us to consider for what scares us. Now, as a couple of other listeners have done, some people have submitted more than one thing for consideration, and we would then sort of cycle through those things and say, okay, this is what I think we're going to do. You did that work for us this time because you submitted a few different things and then reached out to me quite deliberately and was like, hey, I've been thinking about this a lot, and if you were able to, I really think you should cover 1986's The Hitcher. So I'd really love to just sort of give you the floor for a minute, let you talk a little bit about where your thought process was, what is it about this film that scares you, and and, and why did you think it, it deserved sort of our attentive coverage in this plate? So, so originally I had, I think I'd sent in one for the strangers and I, yep. because y'all had already covered it, I was like, well, y'all can do strangers pray at night, which I, right. I, I like, it's not as good, but, but I still like it quite a bit. And so, but then it hit me and I guess it's because I hadn't seen this movie in a while and I was like, why don't I do the hitcher? It's the same basic, like quote unquote scary thing. Um, and it's one of my favorites. Right. It's mm. one I keep coming back to after, you know, years and I love it every time. Um, and as many people who have listened to the show for a long time know, I'm afraid of open spaces. I knew it. So, I watched it. I was like, this is it. So <laughs> I wrote it down. It's, it's the fear that anything could come out of anywhere. Yeah. Like it yeah. could come from behind me. It could come from the side. And Rucker Howard does all that. Oh, yeah. He's everywhere. And and I think they intentionally do it in a way that it almost feels supernatural. Yeah, um, he's almost he, omnipresent in yeah, this. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I, and it's done really well. It's not done like it's it's kind of like um the shape and a Halloween. Like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. kind of supernatural, but he's also human. So you're just like it's that ambiguity. Um, so I like that. Um, but it's it's also the fear, and I think it's ingrained in society in general of picking up someone hitchhiking. And then either, well, or, or being a hitchhiker and being picked up by someone. It could go both ways. Yeah. Um, and something going awry, you know, being right. attacked right. or, you know, someone try to attempt to murder or, or whatever. Mm. Mm. So I like that you position those as distinct, opposite, different things. Like, yeah, yeah. Being attacked yeah, I mean, or having murder. I mean, you don't necessarily get killed if you're attacked. <laughs> no, that's true. That's but true. You, if you get murdered, you're, you're murdered. Yeah. You're murdered. You're There's dead. No coming back from that. <laughs> you're, <so>. you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> I 
you, Blake. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you just handed me a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Oh, so, yeah, you I get mean, murdered, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Lord of mercy. Oh, man. Uh, that wasn't even planned. I'm nope. so glad. I'm so glad. That's how the best comedy works. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so really, that's, that's really at the base of, of, you know, what, what scares me about this movie and, and about the strangers, if you want to go there too, um, is just this idea that some entity can come out of, the woodwork mm. and, and I just for whatever reason, sometimes just to watch the world burn, like yeah. John Ryder. Um, sometimes there's, um, you know, and I, you know, there was a reason behind it, but I don't like the idea of not seeing the enemy coming. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like I don't, I'm, I'm largely a pacifist, mm-hmm. uh, but the idea of being killed, like from someone behind me, like in a creep, <laughs> Oh right, like, right, right, right. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to see I love, the axe swing what, down a, what a phrase! I'm largely a pacifist, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, but. there's I a think, there's a there's a percentage fair, there. If there's every every pacifist who doesn't back. say there's not a butt in there, is probably yeah, yeah. lying. <laughs> Everybody's got a big butt. What's your big butt like? Hey, you've before we wade too far into the 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 deeps here mm-hmm. you you just invoke this and the movie itself kind of props up this conversation and question um so i'm curious you know we're friends here you've been here before blake you you, you know like you're part of the fam have you guys ever picked up or been a hitchhiker and what might the story be that goes with that? Do you need a minute? Because I've got a story. Oh, right, go it's story it. time. Yeah, go it's, for it. It, it. You you go for it. It's short for me. I never have yeah, picked anybody up. Too. Never have picked anybody up. Never hitchhiked. So, yeah. So, go ahead. I've, I've got Either. something that I can... It's vaguely hitchhiking. <laughs> all right, Not all right. for me. Um, well, I... I so. Okay. So, my brief story is 2002. So, good night. Almost 20 years ago. Wow. Um... <laughs> shut it down um, <laughs> um i to complete my degree from mine and reed's mutual alma mater i and you did too reed but had to do an internship and so one summer my internship was at the lost colony outdoor theater on the outer banks of north carolina and i don't even remember why this was the case but so so the Lost Colony, I suppose, like places like it, has uh, uh, housing for, you know, it's like summer troop stuff. And for some reason, I don't remember what happened, but I got stranded. You know, it's a little town. And and maybe I'd, this is long before the days of Uber and whatnot. Uh, maybe someone had dropped me off at a place. Anyway, I had to go into, or I chose to go at least in this case, into a church. I needed a ride back to the housing. Mm. Uh, I needed a ride back to the housing. And so I go into this church and I was just like, Hey, I'm here with lost colony. I mean, it's a very reputable or well-known enterprise out there. And I was like, Hey, I'm lost colony. I just, I, I really could just use a ride back to the property. And I, memory is a bit fuzzy on this, but it, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the pastor of the church. He was on site that day. And, and you can just see, you know, this has got the makings of just 
Oh boy. Awesomeness. Yes. Awesomeness written all over it. And so he, you know, offers me a ride and, uh, on the way back, you know, you're trying to make small talk. I'm at the time, 21 years old. Uh, and he just starts talking to me about the, the spiritual perils of Hollywood. Oh no. Yes. Oh no. He's like, well, I, I remember him recounting some story of some wayward, you know, young man of faith out in Hollywood who went astray and was like strung out and all this stuff. I'm like, bro, <laughs> you can let me out. <laughs> but bro. you just, you bro. just not. Okay. Well, oh my gosh. You've, you've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm going to go pack my bags and go home. Lord. Oh, anyway. So yeah, not technically a hitchhiking scenario, but getting a ride from a stranger. Yeah. Uh, scenario yeah so i've i've never picked anyone up on a hi- actual highway or anything mm. like that but there have been numerous times when i lived in dallas fort worth and here in tulsa uh that i've picked up a you know destitute person or or, or someone who uh may have been strung out and i've taken them to a hotel or something mm-hmm. um mm. that's been two or three times i it's it's funny because I always I always recall how nervous I am in those spaces. Sure. And nothing ever happens. Like actually they're super nice most of the time. They're just yeah. trying to get somewhere. So Yeah. Um and yeah, it's 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 one of those things like the the fear is always there but like like statistically speaking it's so low that anything is actually going to happen in right. those kind of uh, right. scenarios. And so it's just so it's, it's one of those urban legends that killed an actual like mm-hmm. way of travel. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because that used to be, and I don't, I haven't done my research, but that used to be uh, a, a, that's uh, a great way. A great <laughs> I haven't way done to any research, but I'm just going to statement. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you know, this is the way it was. I haven't done the work on this one, but so, how it was is. But how it was. No, uh, uh, <laughs> let me be what more. What happened was. <laughs> let me let me be more specific. I do not know the statistical years and timeframes at which it declined, but I know that hitchhiking used to be a primary means when somebody like could not afford bus fare, did not have uh, independent transportation. Hitchhiking was you know, a pretty common thing that they would that they would do. I think a lot of things have influenced that, like the advent of cell phones and accessibility of certain other sort of means. And, and then pro- possibly, and this is where I, I really don't know, but possibly also the rise in sort of uh, perpetual fear of the stranger, fear of the sort of the danger and the risk uh, inherent. Um, but yeah. I mean, if anything trained me about the hazards and pitfalls at a young age of hitchhiking it was peewee's big adventure (laughs) it was the worst accident she had ever seen it was the worst accident oh man (laughs) and when they pulled the body from the twisted burning wreck it looked just like do you know what i always get that moment confused with i was thinking of uh I was thinking of what's his face who tore the tore the tags off the mattresses, but you brought up Large Marge, which I love too. Well, so well, no, the the I always get Large Marge 
whenever I think of the large Marge moment when they, you know, pulled my body from the right. wreckage or whatever, and yeah. I always meld it with Christopher Lloyd and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. When, he's like, uh, when I oh, killed yeah. your brother, I looked like this. And then, like, uh, he has yeah. his own, like, yeah, like yeah. face That's to start two very thing. different movies. No, yeah, I know. In very <laughs> different scenarios, you know, but, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> I did think it was weird when that pastor dropped me off. He was like, tell him large Marge sent you. <laughs> no, no. So, okay. So to get oh back, boy. no, no, to get back, to get back into the film, because yeah. like, because have we even gotten into it yet? No, yeah. probably not, probably not. Right. So, um, a little peek behind the curtain: the very, very small list now at this point of films that were in that initial sort of hundred and fifty list blitzkrieg that I'd done of saying like when the show was starting, mm. and when I was trying to figure out. You know, proof of concept, what would we converse about, things like that. Um, there was, I made a list of about 150 films that I was like, these are things we could talk about. And, uh, we have, you know, over the course of the show, we have, we have either covered the material directly or covered something comparable to make that material redundant. Um, but one of the intersections, like one of the early, uh, ideas was like, oh, you could, you could talk about the hitcher. And you could talk about all sorts of things like, you know, good Samaritanism and sort of the risks and dangers and like how we treat strangers and what to do when there really is this risk and all these sorts of big grand ideas. So in a way, this is an exciting conversation to have because I'm like, oh, yeah, this is something that's probably been waiting in the wings of the fear of God for its entire run. Um, But I can remember. No pressure. (laughs) But but I can remember when I first saw this movie, um, I remember like. I love the economy of this film and how literally from the moment see Thomas Howell, Jim Halsey is his character's name from the moment he picks him up, like within minutes, the, um, the, the inherent threat of the film is, uh, is upon us. Cause he's like, yeah, those, those folks back there, I killed them and uh, I'm going to kill you too. And that's in the first probably five minutes of the movie that that, ha- that that gauntlet has been thrown down. And then the film then proceeds. It's very simple. You want to talk about the simplicity of like a RoboCop plot line. It's like, what, what's, Witcher, what's Hitcher about? It's like, okay, well, he picks up a very, you know, homicidal and suicidal hitchhiker. Danger ensues. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. that's, really all, that's really all there is to it. Um, but it is interesting to me. Um, and I, and Nathan, I want to hear your sort of like thoughts and experiences about the film. But one of the things that's really stuck out to me is I think John Ryder as a character fascinates me because we see him just callously disregard tons and tons of lives throughout the course of this movie, just killing people outright, killing people who get in his way. And yet he's playing a game with Jim, like he has multiple opportunities to just take Jim out, no questions asked, and does not do it. And I find that really, fa- I'm sure we'll get into it, but I find that really fascinating about this film. And I have a couple of sort of uh, things that I find interesting about it. But before we get like too far into that, Nathan, I, I wanted to hear, like, what was your experience? Had you heard about this film? Uh, w- what was your experience of watching it? Any sort of like that? Well, my experience of where I sat down one night. <laughs> Uh, no. Um, you want to know what I was wearing? Why are you asking me this? <laughs> <laughs> Berries. Um, so, uh, shout out to Visart Video in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, who about three years ago on the ropes of economic straits uh, turned themselves into a nonprofit uh, and are now one of the biggest film archives uh, on the East Coast, maybe wow. in the nation. Wow. Um, I was in there recently. 
And when y'all started talking about the scarcity of finding this, I just knew. I was like, I bet they've got it. Mm-hmm. And so I called them the next day. Uh, they, of course, had it. I have it now. It's overdue by a day already. So late fees. <laughs> Sorry, but extra money for you. Bye, And um, they were telling me. I was just asking them because they have this massive collection. And I, I was just real point blank. I was like, so is the goal to just have everything? And because they've got VHS stuff. I mean, just DVDs, oh, wow. Blues, all of it, all of it. And he said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying, you know, when we pivoted over to be a nonprofit, it was with the intention of not just economic salvation for themselves, but, you know, turning themselves into this film repository. And he said, you've got Netflix, Hulu, and maybe he referenced Prime. He said, between the three of those, there's. I want to say he said, does 200,000 sound like too many movies or is that like a proper mm-hmm. amount of no, titles? It's probably, it's probably right. Yeah. It's probably well, right. his, his, I, I couldn't remember if I was thinking 20,000, if I was inadvertently adding or reducing a zero, but he said between those three streaming services, they have about 200,000 titles. He said, we have 400,000. Wow. And, um, and it was just really amazing. Like, that's just the place if you're looking for something that's, real specific. That absolutely um, that's great. So anyway, shout outs to them for having that and you know, that experience of going to the old video store. Um no, I was I I had never heard of this. Oh, In wow. fact, while I haven't done a ton of ancillary reading beyond just the IMDB stuff to know its kind of place zeitgeist wise. Even popping it in, I was like, oh, this is just going to be one of these like random niche movies that just Mm. horror fans kind of know about, but wider pop culture wouldn't. And I think I was pretty wrong on that. Not, you know, like, I'm so stupid. Thanks, Reed. But no, I was just um, affirming that, like, yes, it's a big deal movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Right. Right. right, Yes. I didn't know that at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So literally had not heard of it. Um, And so, you know, clearly, you know, the premise, but to the point that. I'm sure I've seen C. Thomas Howell and something or over, over over the years, but I did not recognize him. Just mm. you know, it's I've seen him few and far enough between, and to to not recognize him 35 years ago. So when he when you're introduced to him as the initial driver, I didn't know that was him. So I uh, I was actually thinking, oh, this is just a teaser for the bigger story of whatever uh, the bigger story gotcha. was, mm. not knowing. No, this guy you're with right now, that's going to be the whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did write down, oh, Long Stretches of Road. This is why Blake doesn't like this movie. <laughs> um, but no, ultimately, um, I found it very energizing. I really love that feeling of a movie that's been kind of under the radar. You know, like I just didn't know, A, that it existed and B, what its impact was. And so I went in really fresh to it and... I texted y'all an hour 40 later. I was like, that's a really solid flick. Really it really it. is. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it, it's to its credit that it's efficient. It's efficient in its storytelling. Um, I think it doesn't try to be terribly ambitious uh, in, in what it's trying to execute. Although the multi-car crash stunt driving sequence had to have been, you know, uh, just a beast to execute technically. Which- um 
Rutger Howard did a, most yeah, of his right yeah, driving, his stunt driving. Yeah. Like the stunt drivers were impressed. Like when the actor shows up and the stunt drivers are impressed with the, with your degree of stunt driving, it's like, okay, yeah, you've got your legit bona fides or you're just yeah. crazy. But like, yes, like, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, maybe. Like, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. would believe that guy's crazy. Well, <laughs> yeah, because, it, well, because that's the thing. Like, see, Thomas Howell had said, like, offset. He was legit scared of him just because yeah. of his intensity as an actor, you know. And, uh, and I mean, Rutger Howard, you know, God rest his soul, that, like, he, um, it was somebody that definitely had a commitment to, like, the thing I think he's most known for, I could be completely wrong about this, but I think the thing he is yeah, most... Not. <laughs> I think the thing he's most known for is his position in Blade Runner as, yeah. you know, this this replicant thing. That's that's I think what most people mm-hmm. sort of associate with him. Uh that and maybe more recently Hobo with a shotgun. But still like <laughs> Batman but, begins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 Batman begins. Um but no, it's just any anything that I've ever seen him in cuz like he played uh Barlow in the remake of Salem's Lot. Um mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and so like and and delivered delivered a real sort of intense performance. That's that's what he brings. He brings a degree of focus and intensity whenever he you know delivers a performance. Um, and I can understand why C. Thomas Howell would be like like dude. Evidently that early shot with the knife where he's threatening to puncture him. Evidently that was somewhat improvised, and that the fear on Howell's face is real. <laughs> that he's like because he didn't know what that what Howard was going to say. Or what, uh, or where he was going to put the knife, and so he puts the knife like right there next to his eye, and and he was like, I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> like, what are you doing inside the scene? Um, so yeah, that, he's, uh, he's pretty intense. That, you invoking that scene makes me think of a, a way to get us oh, to our next step. Read. Sure, I want. Sure. I want you to. I want you to say three words. Read. Three <laughs> words. You, you you want me to? I want you to say that. Eight. What? <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> uh, the idea was repeat to repeat the word. Me. Repeat the word. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Instead, we'll just go, that ain't right. 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 Blake's like, man. What has happened? It's no, been it's- a while since I've been on the show. Yes. And I'm not coming back. <laughs> but, like, man, the man dropped me in, like, didn't even tell me I needed a jingle for the thing. He just said, Reed, you told me you had a jingle. Blatantly lied to the listeners. Just like, <laughs> just like, Reed told me he had a jingle. I'm sitting there wonderful. wide-eyed, like, yeah. what do you want me to do? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, That's anyway. The dingleberries entered the story. <laughs> um, so, so yes, it is the time, is a part of the show where the three of us are going to, we, we've each allocated uh, three qualifiers three candidates for what could be termed from this film that ain't right mm-hmm. blake mm-hmm. you are our guest uh thus you go last i'm just kidding uh, uh thus <laughs> i want you to go first what is your number one candidate for that ain't right in this film it's i mean it's it's hard to beat, and we don't actually even see it. it's nash being torn apart by the two semis absolutely. i mean that's absolutely yeah. i mean you hear what you think is a sound of a body ripping, but it goes to black. And so yeah, you don't see right. anything, but just the sound and the knowledge that that happened, like it's so visceral. That's and dreadful. like, yeah. I, I cringe every time. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's so funny you say that because the, I mean, it's not, it's not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> we'll laugh, but <laughs> I just had no idea where the story's going. Right. Yeah. So, sure, sure. Oh, okay. It's, it's the two of them. And I know enough about story structure to know, 
you're going to run out of ramp with mm-hmm. the two guys jockeying for cat and mouse after a while. Like, okay, right. what are you going right. to do to kind of raise the stakes? <laughs> oh, you, you did it. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos. <laughs> you have raised the stakes. And so when it shows her suspended there, I was like, uh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then he gets in the, in the cabin with him or in the cab. <laughs> and then I was just like, oh, he did it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Didn't oh. see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's not supposed to happen. It's like a violation yeah. and and I say this admiring the film's boldness and its and its sort of uh intelligence to put us on our heels like that because you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed mm-hmm. to take and Jennifer Jason Lee has her own degree of intensity to her performance, but in this especially she's demure, she's sort of vulnerable, she's um and she's supportive of our hero. She's the only one that believes him and is the only one who's really willing to sort of stick her neck out and help him. You don't kill this person, but even if you are going to kill her to prove how serious the situation is, you don't rip her apart between two semis, you know, yeah. like tied up begging for her life. Y'all, that ain't right. Like you just, you just don't do right. that. No, that that and, is absolutely yeah. That ain't right. And that was even the first of the uh, the the taboos they broke. But I'm not going to talk about sure. it in case it comes up. Yeah, no, well, no, absolutely. I, I want to throw in here just because this is a, a an overlay that could be all, over all of these. That ain't right. So it's not going to be specific to any one. The Nash death was pretty galvanizing just from a pure kind of MPAA, you know, what, how, yes. how, how yes. to portray, what to portray, if to portray kind of thing. Um, I did find very interesting. This is one of the few movies that Ebert gave zero stars, which yeah. actually did surprise me because I'd read that after watching it. Um, right. yeah. And it says when he and Siskel uh, uh, denounced the movie on Johnny Carson, he uh, Carson asked were they opposed to censorship. And Ebert replied, of course, I'm opposed to censorship. The film should be made, it should be shown, and it should not be attended by anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah. Ebert, Ebert bringing the heat. Yeah. Um, he was not he was not a fan. But when when he was like and, and and there's there's no actual wrong uh when when it comes to Ebert, but when he's quote unquote wrong by most people's standards, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And he has a few in his, in his yeah. catalog where it's yeah. just like, whoa, you really thought that was <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right, and that's a good point. It's like he's rarely that off, but when he yeah. is that off, like it's it's usually that's like huge. another stratosphere. Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, things that are or aren't right, yes. Reed, okay, what's so on, what's on your list? So next next Do one it. down for me. I've I've got to I've got to because the next one down is that friggin' finger in the fries stuff like that i mean that ain't right that ain't right you're uh -uh. sitting there enjoying some salty fries you got your ketchup right there and then suddenly you chomping on some knuckle it's not it's not right (laughs) my god i was not planning on saying that (laughs) yes that was oh my god you needed to feel it again so i just i'm I'm glad i I could you just hear the click (laughs) oh stop (laughs) so yeah So yeah, that ain't uh, well, right. That ain't right. But I mean, what a scene. Yes. For oh, someone yeah. like me who knew nothing of this movie. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, good. He's got a little respite. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. And and the way the shot is cut or the way the shot is framed, um, you just it's one thing to have a character wander into a scene like Nash's ultimate murder scene 
<laughs> you're dead. Uh, <laughs> it's another thing to have a quiet moment that yeah. you think is a moment of respite for the character turn very sharply into the exact opposite. I mean, that's a great scene. No, oh, absolutely. It's awful, yeah, but it's great. And it ain't right. It ain't. It ain't. Y'all, y'all took the biggies. So, uh, uh, no, no. What, what I would say is, um, my addition to this because, and it comes early in the film. Cause again, you got to remember my first time watching this. Of course, I know Redger Hauer is a name, but I don't know what the structure of this film is sure. going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have any preparation for just how, wicked and murderous this dude is mm-hmm. my that ain't right is the station wagon and him in the back yeah. with the kids like yeah. once that to the point again didn't watch a trailer didn't read a synopsis only know the title and the 15 minutes leading up to that uh which what precedes that is is uh halsey that's his name right yeah Jim halsey, halsey. Yeah. kicking him out of the car so when he sees him in the back, there's a moment where I thought, is he having sort of a fever dream? Like, oh, is he, sure. Right. He, he, we've seen him uh, almost doze off while driving. He's out on the open road. Like, is this really happening? And once you sort of click in, it is really happening. That's a that's a terrible moment. It's awful. That, that's the other taboo I was, I was saying is yeah. don't kill kids. Yeah. yeah. And just boy. a mere suggestion of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's gruesome. Like, yeah. here's the, here's the other thing. That the film, for all of its sort of taboo breaking, it does know when it needs to be restrained. You know, yeah. like it doesn't, it doesn't bask in that for extra shock value. It, you know, they've been murdered, and you know that Howell then runs back to his car and and vomits because of whatever he's seen, and that's really all you need for your imagination to just completely go away from you in terms of what must have happened, what what vicious nightmarish thing must have happened in that station wagon. And the same thing with Nash is that the last thing that we see of her is her is her hands bound and being pulled against the thing and then, you know, it cuts to other places because you don't need to see that degree of of, of just extravagance. And it's almost almost I think more potent that they didn't sort of show it. If they'd showed it then what I would have seen is Hollywood trickery and very skilled sort of makeup stuff, and that's what I would have seen. Yeah. Instead, I don't get the release, the mental release of of getting to see that fabrication. I just know narratively, oh my God, that's what just happened, and it's well, it's powerful. I, and the only reason why there is that restraint, because Eric Red's original screenplay was like full out, violence gore mm, like mm. everything was shown everything like, wow. wow everything was shown apparently it was at, at the time one of the most violent scripts that had been put to paper and oh my gosh. and the only reason why it wasn't is because robert Harmon, the director it was his first movie yeah <laughs> it was he's yeah. like no <laughs> we're not doing that we're not gonna go uh, there we okay? don't have the time for it but also it's not gonna make a good movie <laughs> yeah hmm. yeah <laughs> well Thank you, gentlemen, for your participation in another installment of That Ain't Right! That Ain't Right! That, that ain't, ain't Right! right. That, ain't right. <clears throat> that Ain't Right! That Ain't Right!
that ain't, that ain't right. Hey, I've got a. I've got, this is not actually. This is a question coming to me in real time, and so we can spend as little as much time as you want on it. So this is not a thing that bothered me while watching the movie, but something just in pondering, like because I. Um, maybe Reed would echo this just being a friend to me. <laughs> like, yeah, you do do that. Um, I'll always try to sift through like, okay, if I were playing kind of devil's advocate with this piece, which I liked, what could I pick apart? You know, or, or what would I point to and say, maybe that or whatever. And so I'm actually not offering this as a, I don't like it because, right. but I was thinking about, uh, there's a world in which, I kind of love the movie for this, but there's also a world in which where I'm just not sure, like you don't get anything really about these characters. No. And no. does that, is there a world where it would intrigue you to have a little more like, because, because as I sort of was pondering the movie and it's kind of place historically and two, two comps that come to me very directly are, Honestly, uh, the the T one thousand or Terminator in sure, general, right? And right. then two was Anton Chigurh. You know these yeah, definitely these should, yeah. mm-hmm. unstoppable forces. Well, T one thousand is a, a a robot, um, and then Chigurh is meant as a at least in the film. It's I, I never actually read the book, but is meant as this manifestation of. Mm-hmm embodied it's evil pretty much the same in the book yeah it is okay yeah. and but the point being like the, the point being there's a distinction that's that's being made there there's an outline drawn to explain away okay you don't really need stuff and i guess and i'm totally okay with this are you guys is that how you view writer like that's he's occupying that same space or is he a human guy and is just really good at this thing yeah no, I, I would definitely agree that it's, it's, he's a force of nature. Um, mm-hmm. and that's where we were talking about uh, towards the beginning of the podcast or the beginning of the discussion about that ambiguity of mm. he seems to be everywhere. Um, yes. Right. And so he's still human. He's, he can be killed as he mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Um, but up until that point, you don't actually know. And, and there, there are some people out there who, still make the argument that he's really just a figment of Halsey's imagination that Halsey mm. was actually doing it the whole time. Mm. But some of like, I, I have a hard time with that with a couple of scenes um, that don't make sense within the scope of the film. Agreed. Um, but, but I could make, but I could see where they were trying to do with that because it would make an interesting, I guess, a uh, conceptual um, discussion on like what, because you could almost say that that he is a fever dream when he sees him in the back of the station wagon, mm. and that it's his trauma that's constantly like it's coming back to him. He actually had that incident with Ryder, but Ryder is you know back on the road, back there, looking right, for right, another right. hitcher, you know, looking for another ride, and he's just like the trauma or the or, or right. the PTSD really just caused him to lose it. Um, but no, I think I think it's really hard to read Ryder as like just a bad guy. Like, right. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. nearly yeah. impossible. And uh, that like was... you said, you don't really get much from any of the characters. Right. Actually, Nash is probably the one you get the most from. And I kinda like uh, that. Reed, so, you yeah. use the word I think you use the word economical. Like I kinda like it's very direct. And I think if you if it had gone much longer or tried to overlay much more right. plot, it would have started to 
tip the apple cart yeah. but mm-hmm. uh yeah i, I kind of really appreciated it. it's it's directness in that regard yeah and i'm and i'm with blake the Hauer, Rudger Hauer had said that that was his interpretation of the character as well. So we know that that's the oh, way, really? he, yeah, that that's the way okay. he played it is that, is that Ryder is a manifestation of evil. He's a representation of just evil. That makes um, sense. And what fascinates me so much, I think I alluded to this earlier, but didn't outright say it. What fascinates me so much is that he is almost appears in the narrative beats of the film to be as suicidal as he appears homicidal. That Ryder is self-destructive as well as destructive and uh, to the degree that that's why ultimately he takes well the, the part of his impetus for going ahead and taking Nash's life is because Howell wouldn't kill him you know mm-hmm. and so it's like it, it, it but if Howell had killed him his feet foot would have slipped off the gas pedal nash would have died so it was like these you know a bunch of these no win scenarios yeah. and that seems very much a you know a template for Anton Sugar, I think, is a is a perfect sort of yeah. surrogate um, with a much more recent film, but um, but I'd I think actually make that my afterthought. Ooh, there it is, born in real time, right here. Pour some sugar on me. <laughs> oh, hey now. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. In the name of love. Uh-uh. No. No. no, 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 no. Every now and then, Reed realizes that I just use our podcast discussions as a vehicle for coming up with stupid titles. You know, it's like, wait a minute. Oh, I forgot. Nathan's really not in this for real. Got it. Got it. Okay. No, that was the one. That was the one. He's just going to ride the rest of this conversation to be like, okay, yeah, I got that one. I got that one. I'm going to remember to put that in my book later. And I'm going to write that. No, that one's for Blake. It's a freebie. Oh, okay. Understood. Oh. Understood. Um, oh, that's funny. But no, like, I think. And and to that end, I'll even go, you know, one next step. I don't want more about these characters because they are sure. presented as archetypes. I, you know, Nash is the archetypal sort of supportive victim. Howell is the the everyman, you know, beset upon by all of these sort of wicked, evil forces. And I think substantiating them as characters in broader sense with backstories and stuff would position them as giving us reasons for why this is happening and i think part of the part of the point of the film is why is this happening we don't know why this is happening howell was just being nice picked up the wrong guy on the wrong time of night he did nothing narratively speaking he did nothing wrong his 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 wrongness in the narrative of the film is extending um aid to a evil malevolent force that was the only thing that he did wrong and it was purely benevolent he's not you know it's not like he's running from any sort of sick past or anything he's just we we don't get a lot of understanding of exactly like why he's going across the country and what some of the ins and outs are like what his goals and aims are sure um but he's just he's just he's just a traveler that's it that's that's all he is and you know the compassion he shows to the other people even those who are like trying to capture him and trying to hurt him the still maintaining this metronome of like i'm innocent you need to listen to me i didn't do this you know like i always get so tense in that scene where the cop has got him and is like i you spilled something on my hand you need to wipe it off of my hand Mm -hmm. knowing that the moment he goes for it it will appear to everybody like he's going for the gun and he'll be able to shoot him with impunity and 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 even howell's presence of mind in that moment to know like i'm i'm not doing this like i'm i'm not going there um he's a he's a he's a 
smart character and he's a strong character, but he's not a character that we need to know all of the ins and outs of their life because then they cease being archetypes and sure. then suddenly there's a, you know, then there's, there's a, there has to be substantiating the reason of like writers, you know, drive right. for why he's doing well, this. Well, and, and sincerely, it was meant as just sort of pondering together what we think of that because, yeah, there's plenty of times. I mean, it's, um, what was the, um, uh, uh, movie You're Next, right? Yes. Is that the one? Is that the oh, one the with, yeah, oh, the house and the people yeah. and she's like, my dad was an Australian yeah. outback survivalist, and I'm like, I don't care, you know. Like, yes, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of yeah. answering my own question there. Is I don't always need, right, and don't think it's appropriate to always have every I dotted and T crossed. Let me use my imagination to sort of fill in some blanks that are worth I filling think, in. I think you could say almost uh, one of the famous things that a lot of critics talked about when Mad Max Fury Road came out was that that the action was the story. Oh, right. Um, the action was the characterization. You find out about the characters through the action. And mm-hmm. I think you could, whether they do something or they don't do something, that tells you everything you need to know about the character for that film. Right. And I think that that works for the Hitcher too. I think everything you need to know about Jim Holsey is told through what he won't do. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. And then what Rugger, or what John John Ryder will do, or what Nash will do, uh, or he won't do. And so the action is what drives what we know about the characters, and that's all we need for something. Because the second you start adding backstory, then it becomes less economical. Sure. And it slows down the pace of the movie, and, and this is not that kind of movie. Um, yeah. And so, I yeah, part of me thinks that like you bring up the part where he's talking about the coffee or the drink on his hand or the coffee on his hand or whatever. Right, it was. right, right, and right. Right after that, the one of the lines that kills me is when Nash says, "When the truth comes down, I'll be all right." Oh my god, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And yeah. knowing how it ends, like that that line hit me anew this time. I don't think I really had noticed that line before. Yeah, but would you say it tore you into? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it did. It did. Oh, wow. like, oh, yeah. it tore my heart in two. Um, mm. And then made no. me want to put some. No. <laughs> I don't even know where you're going there. <laughs> yeah. Sugar on me. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> no. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I, I just knowing that, that she is while, while Halsey is, he's, he did nothing wrong and he's, he's a fine character. She is a good character. Yeah, absolutely. She is doing. Right. She is trying to do what she thinks is right. Mm-hmm. Whereas we don't necessarily get that with Halsey. We we think he's doing it out of some kind of sense of courtesy or or something. But that doesn't. That's not moral in the sense. Everything mm-hmm. Nash does seems like it comes from a, a a place of like feeling or or moral like emotion. Yeah. Um. And so her being ultimately the one who pays the cost is is brutal. Yeah. Well, and it's and the film is a ninety-minute case for no good deed goes unpunished. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. everybody who does anything remotely benevolent in this film suffers for it. Yeah, like and 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 that's something that I th- I, I I find it interesting because horror is supposed to explode these things out and mm-hmm. and supposed to you know confront us with extremes so that we can kind of try to wrestle this down. That's that's part of its its uh, operative. 
uh, help to us. But I do find that interesting because I I would understand if somebody watched this movie and be like, why in the world did I sit through 90 minutes of just saying, like, don't do any good for anybody. It ain't going to go well. You know, like, because that seems to be sort of the general thrust of the movie. At, at, literally, every character who, I mean, uh, Jeffrey DeMunn as the sergeant is sitting in there like he shows Howell some some grace and, and uh, you know, kind of understands, which it's always a pleasure to see Jeffrey DeMunn because I just love the mm-hmm. guy. But but he shows Howell some, uh, like, understanding and everything. And then Howell, like, leaves him on the side of the road. <laughs> Where is he without without a radio or whatever? Gonna you know walk for miles without water and everything. So even though that wasn't like life ending, you know, it, literally everybody who shows any degree of humanity in this is confronted with the lack of humanity in what is propelling this story forward. Um, and that's part of why I do consider it a really fascinating sort of uh, urban legend, uh, moral fable, if you will. Um, because because it does the the characters that we don't spend any time with, uh, presumably yeah sure see Thomas Howell picked him up, but so did the family with the kids mm-hmm. they picked him up too presumably for comparable reasons because mm-hmm. the guy needs to get somewhere we have room in our car we're gonna go ahead and show and 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 it's the end of them you know yeah. and um and I think that is what we have to confront in and of ourselves is that that urge uh, to say, like, well, something awful could happen, so I'm not going to do anything good. You know, it's like, I don't really have a, I don't really have a question sort of baked into this, but that's, that's the observation that keeps sort of driving me, is like, how do we, maybe that is the question, how do we overcome that impulse that's like, something bad could happen if I stick my neck out? And so, Mm -hmm. does that therefore mean I become, you know, the one who never sticks his neck out for anybody, and therefore people go on perpetually suffering, or does that then mean I stick my neck out and hope for the best? And then if it doesn't, if I, if I then become the cautionary tale for showing benevolence to somebody, uh, it's one thing to show benevolence to a friend wherein you've got baked in relationship and the risk is mitigated because you've known the friend and you know, they'll make good on things if things go wrong, but to do so for people you don't know, in situations that are much riskier, what's that about? How you know? Yeah. What What's well, the expectation upon us? Well, Go to ahead. To take that question and kind of flip it to some extent is for me this the the moral center of this movie lies in the relationship between Jim Halsey and, and John Ryder in the sense that, like you were saying, all the people who do benevolent things or who do seemingly moral good. Mm-hmm are punished in some form. Yeah. Even if it meant being left on the side of the road. So then I, I asked the question by the end of the film, knowing that anyone who does the right thing, will Halsey become the hitcher? Mm. Because he knows it's the only way he can survive in a world where being good is going to be basically your death. Yeah. Like, like I think for me, the force of nature of John Ryder is him playing the game saying, do you stay good? Right. Or right. do you become me? Yeah. Well, so, and, 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 and that was what I was thinking even as you were unpacking this is Ryder's aim through the entire film seems to be his aim in the first five minutes of it is to threaten and frighten. Mm-hmm. But once Howell effectively kicks him out of the car, 
Then the game has changed. So Torment. Howell, Howell kicks him out and gets the upper hand for a moment. Mm-hmm. And then from there, Ryder's aim seems to be to, like Nathan said, torment Jim Halsey and in more than one scene to get Jim to kill him. Yeah. And and to what to the point you just made, Blake, it's like, if you want to stop me, you've got to become me. Because yeah. that's the only way that you mm-hmm. end what I'm what I'm representing. Is is I'm going to continue this path of decimation everywhere unless you turn into me. And to that end, like the original, I read that the original script had Halsey blow him away while he was just laying there. But yeah. but they thought yeah. that audience. Well, they thought that the they NBA would seventeen. Yeah, yeah, it would mm-hmm. give it an NC seventeen. So they had just the the moment, and it it plays into the rest of what we're describing here. Yeah. They had the moment where Ryder stands back up. And, and grins at him. So you see Ryder is still a threat, therefore somewhat justifying him shooting him yeah. when, instead of just shooting him while he's laying down, mm-hmm. down there on the ground. But that would beg, uh, you know, in answering your question, I've raised another one. And is that in, in the ultimate scheme of things, does Ryder win? Has, has, Ryder, yeah. has Ryder won at the end of this film? Because he that's, gets Jim to take him out. I think that's the question. Like, that's yeah. the question you come away from the movie with, is who won? Yeah. Like, who actually won? Yeah. Oh no, Nathan. Who do you think won? Uh, I wish I had a clever response. I don't, but <laughs> um, I think a thoughtful reading might land at it being writer because you know my version of the similar idea was sparked by Nash's line, mm. and that's. Mm that when the truth comes down, I'll be just fine. And how do you tell the Nashes of the world and remind yourself the truth coming down and you being fine are not inclusive statements necessarily. Right. And if anything, part ways with the certitude of you'll be just fine. I think you can rest well in a certitude that the truth will come down, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, but your fineness within or on the other side should always be held pretty loosely. And, you know, I think there's just always a way that life and attachments are, are held loosely because we know not all things are fine or will be fine. Right. And so, you know, to the question of who wins, I mean, because what's hard about the end is is we root for Halsey to do that, but that's our own. Yeah, yeah right. That's our own writer mm-hmm. saying, "Yeah, f you." Right. You know, that's, right. That's, that's that's our own thirst for vengeance and violence, uh, finding a uh, justifiable target. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And and honestly, is for those who believe lofty things, I think like the three of us it defies the truth mm-hmm. on a certain level. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Can, I mean, can we justify the action by legal standards? Sure. Right. Um, right. But I mean, I think the hard part for anyone who is a believer living in any kind of, you know, governance of any sort is, is there a point where 
what is lawful according to, you know, society or government or whatever the court system mm. um, is ultimately trumped by, you know, something higher. Right. Um, because he could have totally, like, he would be off scot-free for killing Ryder. Like, there's oh, like, yeah, no right, way. Right, yeah. would Everything would have been done. Yeah. But anyone who has watched this whole cat and mouse game take place and is on the same wavelength as it seems like all three of us are knows that it's not that simple. It's right. He's not, he's not, he hasn't gotten off scot-free. No. Something's happened. Like he, there's a judgment, whether internal or external has come down on him. Yeah. And that's where the movie stops. Well, and so. that's, yeah, I think that's part of why over the end credits, uh, or like as the credits are rolling, mm-hmm. what we get of him is just the image waiting by the truck. He has, yeah. he has nowhere else to go now. And yeah. I think, I think that's narratively, literally everything. He has nowhere mm-hmm. else to go now. He has, he has now reached his zenith and, and, and he has sort of lost himself. Presumably, well, and it's been years since I've seen it. I don't even know if I've seen all of it. There is a sequel, and C. Thomas Howell's yeah, character is in it. But uh, no, yeah, I think it. I think it just <laughs> abandons so much of what I find interesting about this movie, which mm-hmm. is, you know, this character study of the man against the force and trying to, you know, wrestle down exactly how he can hold on to to moral standing in the midst of it. Go ahead. Well, no, I, all of these things are, are circling the same or similar ideas, and I guess. I'm just, I'm just kind of toying all of this around in my head. What if, if the text of the film by what we're at least suggesting is Ryder wins, what is the version of the film where Halsey wins? He and Nash probably die. Yeah. I mean that, that, that would be one way. That would be one way. <laughs> like, that, like for on a, on a, on a strictly individual level. That would be the only way that that Halsey could get away, and still be, quote unquote. Good. Yeah, maybe maybe a world wherein he takes himself out to save Nash. Yeah, that might you know, like if he if he mm. takes himself and Ryder out at the same time in order to save Nash, yeah. that would be a world in which yeah. you know, like yeah. which again, obviously, given you know, core. Uh, theological constructs you know you undermine yeah, you know you you undermine evil by giving of yourself that's mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. what you do yeah. um and and i think too that's the you know there is that moment where it's like the film almost skirts with you know writer gets arrested for killing nash and then they it's as if if um halsey had gotten the drop on on Damon's character, the sergeant, and then gone and hunted down Ryder and Ryder was still in custody, I think it would be even more sort of like, okay, well he's gone. He's lost yeah. because because he's hunted him down. Halsey. Right, right. Uh, right, Halsey's lost. But when he confronts Ryder again, Ryder has successfully blown away the people. So he is free. <laughs> you know, like Ryder has, you know, Halsey was right. And Ryder is going to just not stop anywhere. And so it's funny. It's like the point I'm making is that the moment that the film kind of skirts to, yeah, there's a way around Halsey sort of giving of himself, then it pulls it all back and, and, and says like, no, there's not, there's not any other way around this. Like you're either going to have to, 
take your both of yourselves down or you are going to have to to sort of become him and and I do think that the the there is a a vision that people have that says Halsey was completely justified and that Halsey has done the right thing to take him out there's a vision of people oh, yeah. of, of of people of faith who it's will just war theory right who will say like no once you're dealing with a writer that's it you're like all bets are off. You stop that at all costs to avoid the remainder of the havoc. And the thing is, I can't escape the fact that that was so frequently pitched in other contexts of like, like people wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome, you know, like not in so many words, but they were like, yeah, you know, like up into the political system and everything. And, and in so many different contexts, it's like, that seems to be the justifiable reason. We'll just, just, you know, decimate them, destroy them. Not to get historically political, drop an A-bomb on them and end the war, you know? Oh, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, but then what What have you lost of yourself in the process that you've gone to, that, you, that you've done this thing now, that you've, that you've decimated this, that you've gone to that level? We can, we can, celebrate the fact that the fight is over but what what casualty what casualties were claimed in the process and i would posit that the film confronts directly that Ryder loses the battle to take Halsey's soul with him and i know that's volcanic language but like that's yeah. you know like that that Ryder positions himself to be like i'm gonna you're <laughs> hearkening back to robocop but like yeah dead or alive you're coming with me like like you are you are going to <laughs> You know, like not not to you know accidentally pivot us into jokey things, but like that's that's Ryder's position. Like because and and yeah. the reason I'm so confident about that is because everybody else he couldn't care less about. They are fodder. They are just chafe to his process. He has zoned in on Howell, maybe because Howell kicked him out of the car, maybe because it just is his own good pleasure to to zone in on Howell. But he has targeted this man and is is manipulating the game. With vast machinations, you know, mm-hmm. and there can only be one sort of real reason for that, and that's because he's a, he's after something more than just his life. He's after something more than just you know killing him. It's like this is where I'm torn on. Um, <laughs> there's that language again. Um, <laughs> I'm torn on the use of metaphor and practical meaning because, like so much of my personal kind of theological frame is, is engineered around and, and informed by a rejection of redemptive violence as a concept and, right. And, you know, (laughs) read stupid as it sounds when you said, uh, it's him taking himself with him. I pictured Harry and Voldemort let's finish this the way we started it together kind of idea and 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 I really love the poetry of those of those notions and so that's where the metaphor works I love it Mm -hmm. and yet at the same time I'm torn with this notion of like the practical too I, I feel like I feel the the human in me who has people in my care humans in my care and under threat of violence to them in an individual capacity, what would my response be? I don't, you know, I like mm-hmm. the question, the, the question of who wins is a, is almost moot. And that's a, that's, mm-hmm. that's hard right. to yeah, wrestle down. Right. Like, yeah. 
well, who won, Nathan, you or them? Like, I don't effing care. It's the yeah. goal is preservation of the one you love. And, and, and so, you know, you get into all these shades of nuance of how to, how to take the metaphor into the practical and mm-hmm. which I think is appropriate and right and should be the goal of our breathing is, is to take those, those lofty things we aspire to and proclaim and, and figure out how to work them out. But I don't know. I'm just, just listening to the conversation. That's, that's really yeah. wrestling around in me. Yeah. No, I think, I think, and, and that's the thing is that abstract wise, like there's, you can fall down on one side or the other, but practically speaking, I think you're right. There is, I, I keep coming back to this over and over again. I've told a, a few people lately who have had some, tough times and stuff is sometimes there is no right answer. Mm, um, mm. And I used to always believe that there was a right choice mm. you can make. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure now. I'm not so sure that in every situation that there's a, a purely right choice. I think there's, I think there are maybe largely good choices, um, mm-hmm. but everything comes with a cost or I mean, better choices. Yeah. 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 Or yeah. better choices. Yeah. Um, but yeah. like, I, I keep going back to, uh, I've got a friend who's a Episcopal priest and he, he, his big thing is, uh, under the, under the grace and love of God, all things are, all things are lawful. Not everything is beneficial. Right. Um, right. And so I, I hold on to that probably more dearly than most any other advice I've heard in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that we, we live out the practical knowing that we will fail. Right, um, right. Knowing that our, our most cherished principles will falter. Yeah. Um, in the times that we need them. Um, not always. Right. But, but they will fail. <laughs> well, I keep coming so. back to like, what is an overriding principle? So there's, there's another line from the movie I want to throw in here, but, mm. but what keeps coming back to me is, is the first, uh, phrasing of Nash's line. When the truth comes down, I'll be just fine. You, you won't be just fine. People you love won't be just fine. Mm-hmm. Y'all, my wife and I friggin' talked about our will the other day, and it's like, this is really heavy stuff that makes yeah. me sad to talk about. We won't yeah, be fine. The truth will come down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can make that as metaphorical or as practical as you want it to apply it. But what is interesting, and this is where my hopeful SOB spirit does get stoked and wants to reject, is I don't remember which cop it is in the film, but after Nash gets um, whatever happened to her, one of them says to Halsey, we all know there's nothing you could do. Right. And that feels like a line, like mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. like a don't rule read life. Life is going to grind you up. And we all, there's no, we all know there's nothing you could do. Right. Right. You know, Blake, you're, you're not going to be fine. There's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like, I really reject the defeatism of that. Yeah. Um, while at the same time acknowledging I won't be fine, you know, like this yeah. is what's really fascinating and, and sort of challenging. There is no, so, but here's the thing is there is no, the only time I have ever heard the scripture talked about that I'm about to reference is in the context of the plan of salvation. And I'm not, I'm not uh, diminishing that conversation by invoking it, but there's a profound power to Christ praying in the garden of Gethsemane. If it's possible, let this cup pass. Hmm. If it's possible, 
can we do this another way? And everybody always, re- and again, to now that you know what scripture I'm talking about, everybody always references that in the context of, of the, the uh, concept of salvation and the nuances or scriptural foundations that you have in that concept. But mm-hmm. let's sit, let's just sit for a second with Jesus in that moment. And is there any other way? We, we all, or in other language, we all know there's nothing you can do, you know? And, and what I find really powerful and profound about that is that the scripture says that Jesus was under so much emotional turmoil that he sweat blood. Mm-hmm. We talk about the physiology of that, but he sweat blood. He was under so much anguish of this of like, God, is there any other way? And then it said that there were angels that that strengthened him, that that gave him sort of the courage to do what he had to do. And I think there are situations where it it would be really easy. We just don't get to pick our story, and we don't always get to pick our fight. Hmm. And and I think we do get to pick how we fight and how we move through our story. But but we don't always get to pick what that story is or what that fight is. And there are people who get to glide down the highway. Like Paul Simon has that song uh, from, from, from one of his early albums, which says that some folks' lives just roll easy. Like some folks' lives just roll easy as the breeze, you know? And then there are these other people for whom you look at and you're like, oh my God, the things you have had to bear up under. Or the struggles you have had to try to maintain your sense of self. It is not fair. And and I'll go to another line from a different movie, and it was spoken in very different contexts, but it's a line I think about a lot. Towards the end of, of the Clint Eastwood film, Unforgiven, mm-hmm. there's, there's the moment where a character is about to die, and that character, this is a slight spoiler, but I won't say what character, So, but uh, the character says... This I don't deserve this. I was building a house. I don't deserve this. And the other character that's about to kill them looks right down and says, deserve's got nothing to do with this. And I think that challenges our sense of system because I think we would love, we've talked about this on the show recently, we would love to believe there's a recipe, there's a formula, that Daniel always makes it out of the lion's den, that the three Hebrew children always walk out of the fire, that Esther always receives the scepter of the king, we want to believe that that's the formula and that if you play the system right, if you play the formula right, that that will be the end result of your recipe. And I do not believe that is what the scriptures tell us. I believe the scriptures do tell us that if we have courage, sometimes the king extends his scepter, sometimes fire can't touch you, and sometimes lion's mouths are shut. And I think sometimes you are stoned where you stand. Sometimes you you stand up against profound evil and it just ends tragically and that all of those things happen by faith and that all of those things, the posture in which you stand in the moment, that all of that happens by faith and that it is not really for us to to know or to determine whether the writers of the world will will be successful or whether we will uh, overpower them by some means that that comes to us in the moment. But I think the compulsion is to recognize, do not lose yourself because the writers are out there. Overcome evil with good. Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. That is something that is really easy for us to consider when somebody has wronged us at the Starbucks and inconvenienced <laughs> us. But when you face these more oppressive and, if you exploded out, more systemic evils, that scripture gets a little harder to swallow. 
it is no less of the the challenge and charge that is given to us. There is not an asterisk on it that says, well, okay, there's a couple of times you can repay evil with evil and everything is going to be okay. It's not. Because repaying evil with evil, just everybody loses. Everything is lost. And, um, and that's something that's really challenging for us and why I find it sometimes so difficult in these other concepts. And I do, I do sit, maybe somebody would call me out for contradiction, but I do sit in the place that sometimes you can seek to stop the force to protect the innocent. Like, I do sometimes sit in that place, whether it be from your own children or somebody that you see being oppressed, and you, and you do need to take a stand against that. I, I do believe that. Um, how that stand uh, looks and how it plays out, I think that's where we get into the minutia of overcoming sure. evil with good. And I think that's where you have to be really diligent and conscientious about how you stand in the midst of that and that you're not perpetuating further evil in an, an aim to stop evil. That's a worthwhile conversation. Uh, and it's supposed to be hard. It's it's hard. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's hard. But it's supposed to be hard. And And if it were simple and if it were easy, like... That's the that's the writer route. Writer is just like, no, I'm just <laughs> I'm just after you. You know, that poor gun's not loaded and what are you going to do now? You know, like yeah. you know, that's the simplicity. The the harder work is how we how we make the choices that will uh undermine this, you know. And yes, God if you are sitting, if you listener or if any of you co-host or speaking for myself, maybe 10 years from now when I listen back to this, if you're sitting in a Gethsemane of yourself and begging God, like, God, is there any other way we can go through this? Is there any other way that we can do this? Maybe the answer's no. I was going to say, be prepared for a no. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe the answer's no, but you can take, and I do believe the scriptures say this as well, that you, you can take some comfort in the fact that you are not alone in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like, you are not unseen in that moment, and that... You know, even in that, the angels brought him strength. The angels brought him comfort. Um, and it didn't stop one iota of the pain, of the, of the dread, of the, of the blood sweat. It didn't stop it. But, but there will be strength and courage that you can have to stand up and, 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 to, and to maybe take the, the faithful stand despite unspeakable evil. That's what's really charged with us. Okay, two, go ahead. Yeah. Two quick things as a response to you is, is not only do you, is it hard and will, do we find, will, will we each find ourselves in that space where we're like you sitting in that space where we are stopping the force, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it may be. Um, we also are bolstered by the fact that we are, we are given grace and forgiveness mm-hmm. even in the after yes. of that action. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We're bolstered by that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is you brought up the the furnace uh, with the three uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. And my favorite part of that story is actually when they're talking to Nebuchadnezzar, mm. and they say, mm. "Even if you throw, like you, you can throw us in there, but our God will save us. And even if He doesn't, yeah, mm-hmm. right. That's right. Like." Because they didn't even know. <laughs> right. They had faith mm-hmm. that God was present with them, but yeah. they didn't know if they were going to live or die. Yes. And that's the, that's the difference is, is knowing that God is present with you. Even Regardless. if you don't know yeah. how it's going to end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. No, that's so, uh, 
y'all y'all the hitcher like you know man i tell you like we've talked about a lot of scary stuff um on this series and i'm not in what i'm about to say i'm not diminishing any other entry because man we've we've talked about some really scary stuff but you get to the root of fear the you know there are few scarier things than yeah you could do the faithful thing and maybe not be okay like that when the truth comes Mm. down maybe the truth comes down right on your head and and uh, and that is a scary thing but we are called to have courage and we are called to and we are called to be faithful and we are not called to be faithful conditionally we are called we are called and compelled that as as the three hebrew children even if he does not or as christ in the garden you know uh nevertheless not what i want what what you want you know that it you know if there's any way i don't think it hurts to ask if there's anybody out there who's struggling and anybody out there who feels like their faith is somehow less because they've struggled, let me say very firmly, it does not hurt or offend God that you've asked (laughs) because if Christ could do it, we can do it. (laughs) You know, like it does not hurt that you're upset by what's happening or that you are, you know, mad or, or kicking against what has happened. And I think absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He's not the God, the God I believe in is not insecure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so, so he will, you know, he, he, he will, uh, be faithful and true to you even in the midst of, you know, our struggles with faithfulness, uh, to that end. So yeah, this is a thought provoking film. I'm, are y'all ready to go to the fog meter or, or, or good? We good. All right. So, uh, fog meter as always our very specific metric of fear and God, wherein we rate the scares and the substance of the films or the piece of material that we cover. Um, the hitcher, uh, it is written by Eric red and is directed by Robert Harmon, uh, starring Rudger Hauer and C. Thomas Howell on the fear measurement. I, this, this one does a number on me. I don't think it's like nightmarish, but in terms of that existential dread sort of thing. And, uh, to that end, I'm going to give it an eight. Um, Blake, this was your submission for what scares us. What do you give it on the fear measurement? Um, I think, I think the, the ending of this movie like you said, is the existential dread is, is it hits me every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, it's, I think it's why I don't watch it very often because yeah. I've, it's a gut punch uh, yeah. whenever I, whenever I do. And especially knowing that I'm watching it with the lens in mind that I don't think he chose right. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. Of course. <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, with that in mind, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna up yours and say um, <laughs> up yours. Yeah, I eight love. and a half. Eight okay, and a half. cool, cool. I got you. <laughs> Nathan, are you gonna are you gonna up mine I'm too? Of course, sugar on <laughs> <her> too. <laughs> on your gooseberries. Oh, um, hmm. This is for scares, right? For fear. yeah, for fear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think any movie, any story that no pun intended drives the metaphor this directly and this forcefully uh, is really intending to provide that existential quotient. In other words, it wasn't an accident, you know, that uh, what, what is sort of there Um, from a, from a fear standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I think wrestling against squirming beneath the notion that 
either a your your most righteous deeds will be met with futility if not vanquishing mm-hmm. um uh, or that your desire to return the force uh against that which would harm you might not be appropriate i mean those are pretty lofty scares i feel like i'm blurring these two things because it's all there um i'm gonna i'm gonna sidle up to you reed with your eight on this all right what would you say on the god meter nathan i feel like i just talked myself into a nine i think okay yep uh blake what would you say for it um part of me part of me wonders part of me kind of wants to read the actual original script because mm, see yeah i i kind of wonder how much of the stuff we've talked about even you know pushing away the religious stuff sure um mm. the, the the religious overlay how much they were actually thinking about these issues mm. um mm. so i'm actually i'm, I'm actually going to go with a 7 I, I still think there's a lot there, but sometimes I wonder if it depends on how much you're bringing to it. Yeah. Um, I can, as to what I can you're going to get that. out of it. So. Yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. For me, um, this film is nearly, as we've expressed, this film is nearly all archetype and metaphor. Mm-hmm. And to that end, I think if that's what it's going for, its substance is the strength of its metaphor. It's pretty damn strong. Um, it's it's got some some core sort of wrestlings that I think get to the heart of some of our most fundamental struggles, just in its simplicity of metaphor. Uh, so so to that end, I'm I'm gonna join Nathan with his nine, uh, which I know is bold and gracious, but um, but yeah, that's I, I take it. That's you. Yeah, that's that's bold me. And gracious. I'm, I'm I'm bold and gracious, y'all. Um, so that means that we give the Hitcher uh, again, directed by Robert Harmon, an eight out of ten on the hey, fog meter. That's we'll pretty. That's pretty strong sewing. Um, but I'm curious, and Blake, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, would you recommend the Hitcher, uh, specifically this original? Oh yeah, I I think largely. I mean, I probably I probably warn them of. And that's the hard part is like there's you don't actually see much of anything except for the finger and, and a few things. Right, like that. right, but right. Yeah. There's really no significant like amount of gore or anything like that. But it's what is not shown is is, is tough. It is rough. Yes, <laughs> so, agreed. Yeah. Um yeah, I would uh I would say I'd recommend it. Uh depending on the person I might give a few qualifiers. But Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Understood. Nathan, what about you? Yes. Yeah. Um, short and sweet. There it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I think I'm going to give a qualified recommendation. It's a heavy film. It's a hard film. Dang, it is a it is an effective and powerful viewing, which is not something you can always say for these mid '80s horror films. Um, it's a very eff- and and holds up remarkably well uh, in its power. Uh, so so yes, with those sort of. And usually the qualified recommendations, uh, I do, I do recommend it. Um, so yeah, that, 
that brings us to the conclusion of another installment of What Scares Us. Blake, thank you so much for giving us the chance to talk about The Hitcher, putting, uh, crossing off another one of the list of the, the very, very early days of Fear of God, finally getting hey, to a great it. conversation. I didn't even know it was on the, on the list. <laughs> I didn't either, Blake. <laughs> See, ain't nobody seen the list. The list is right here. Um, so, so next. It's a steel cage. So right. many lists. So, uh, so sincerely, thank you so much. And Nathan, thank you again, as always, for these conversations. Um, next week, we get to cross another, like, another Ooh. one off the list from, like, the first days. Okay. So, do we? Uh, yes, we do. Yeah, we do. So, <laughs> so next week, we are going to be going, first of all, to episode seven of The Witcher. Only episode mm. seven next week because we will uh, address episode eight when we have the full conversation about season one. So only episode seven of The Witcher next week. But then next week, we are going to be going to the one and only, say his name five times, Candyman. Oh, right. That's right. Candyman. Ooh, I love that movie. Candyman. Candy okay, I'm going to stop. Can. So, um, so, yes. So we are going to be covering and... I know that, uh, you know, we'll probably put a time, you know, like the, the, uh, identify this as the 90s version of this because the new one is coming out later this year. Um, the, the original Candyman was an entry, uh, by one of our listeners for, uh, the What Scares Us. And so next week, that's where we're going to be headed. The, uh, Tony Todd, Virginia Madsen starring, Virginia Madsen starring, Candyman. So, uh, we will see you all there next week. As we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Love you, Thank brothers. You, Reed. We'll Thank talk you, to you Blake. all next week. Okay. Bye bye. See ya. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork. To Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music. And to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.